This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. All public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. Good evening. Last night I started to talk about a... um, an essay by Dogen Zenji, the finder of Soto Zen in Japan. Um, It always intrigues me how, as scholarship seems to find more information, what we thought were fundamental teachings um, turn out uh, not to be. Like the Four Noble Truths, we used to think that the standard teaching, and to some degree still is, that this was the Four Noble Truths, was a compilation of uh, Shakyamuni Buddha. Well, modern scholarship says that's not the case. Someone put it together later, or it was kind of about two centuries later, someone um, took his teachings and said, well, he, he taught, basically taught four principles, four truths. And here's what they are. So he never used the term himself. Um, and I found out recently uh, that scholarship now with uh, Dogen Zenji, you know, Dogen Zenji, um, He wrote um, 97 essays, and they go together in a, in a book of uh, the True Dharma I, Shobogenzo. Um, and, and at one point in Japan, the, the sense of propriety. Uh, nature of this was that you had to be a, a dedicated Soto Zen practitioner to get to read it. And it became so exclusive that it literally uh, went out of circulation. And then ironically it was rediscovered by um, Westerners as, as they came across it and we're saw so a, a, a close correlation between the Dogen's writings and the writings of Heidegger. And, and then it, it sort of re, sort of like reintroduced to circulation. And for many years, there was a phrase, uh, Shinjin Datsuraku, which translates as uh, body and mind dropped away. And the story was that when Dogen was in China, he had this awakening experience. And he went to his teacher and he said, 
Shinjun Datsuraku, body and mind have fallen away. And uh, his teacher said, yes, I can see that. And I'm modern scholarship saying, um, never happened. <laughs> and, you know, for 30 years I've been hearing this was, you know, the pivotal, it's, it's like saying, it's like someone saying, Shakyamuni never had an awakening, you know, that, that thing we heard about him sitting under the Bodhi tree never happened, you know. Um, that isn't the teaching, by the way, but it's called into question with Dogen. And, and it's interesting because um, it, it lets us see that if we have a fixed notion, okay, I know exactly what the teachings are. Um, we need to proceed with caution around that kind of notion. No. I mean, the best we can say is, as far as we know, this seems to be the teachings. And I am, with my own particular biases, capacities of understanding and realization, relating to them like this. Um, I first got interested in Zen when I went to Japan. And I, without knowing it, I lived beside the Buddhist, the Soto Zen Buddhist University. Or if you were going to train to be a Soto Zen priest, you would go here for your degree. And I became, I met by coincidence, uh, a young Japanese man, I was 23, he wasn't much older, and he was my introduction to Zen Buddhism. And he would give me books in English to read. And in my Japanese was at that point pretty much non-existent, and his English was better than my Japanese, but still iffy. And we would have discussions about um, Zen in English. And I would ask him a question and he would answer. And I was never quite sure if he understood the question or was the answer he gave so utterly profound that I really didn't get the answer. <laughs> Once I asked him, um, what is karma? And we were sitting at a wood table and he went And I thought, did he understand what I just asked? <laughs> <laughs> or is this just a profound Zen response that I'm not getting? 
um, and here's why I went through all that, what I just said. I thought, um, the fascicle I want to talk about, the essay, is called the Genjo Koan. And that, that was what I talked about last night. In, in, you know, Genjo is to, uh, to be present. And then Koan is to investigate the obvious, the evident, the common, what's in the moment, or investigate the presence that's here. And, and this notion of investigation in, in how our understanding mind, uh, our cognitive faculty, is, is our usual um, access. And, and with the investigation here, that, that's being proposed, is not that. And, and from that point of view, um, I came later to think, well, it's kind of great. I don't know that I got what he was actually trying to tell me, you know? That interesting way, what we know, what we think we know, gets in the way of investigation. Yeah. Um. And so one of the things I was talking about last night was this notion of what you might call the obvious or the common, you know, that, that um, what we're investigating is not some exotic, rare experience, but we're investigating um, what's going on all the time. And that, um, and we're constantly having examples, li we're constantly living examples of what it is to be alive. You know? And then every now and then, something touches us deeply. And I, and I offered a, a few anecdotes. One was, um, a funeral I did for someone, and um, his friends came and said eloquent, beautiful uh, things. And then his mother uh, stood up and, and made this kind of um, obvious statement. But she made it with an authenticity, a heartfeltness that made it compelling. No. Uh, and 
she stood up sighed and just said he was a good son that was it and then just the gravity of it uh, something in us um, gets the whole story no? we don't need the details that tells us about a mother-son relationship for a lifetime it tells us about mother-son's relationships throughout the world that tells us um, familial relationships that tells us what it is when someone you love dies um, that tells us about um, heartbreak and appreciation you know. so the investigation is uh, not so much how we usually uh, use our faculties it's not so much how we usually use our discriminating mind uh, It, and it's very interesting when it happens to us in that kind of happenstance you know it, it, it's like um, sometimes in spiritual list literature it, it's like another voice speaks you know and depend upon the tradition the voice of God or Allah or the unknown in one of her poems Mary Oliver says um, a doorway into silence in which another voice may speak it doesn't have to be the blue iris it could be a weed or just some stones it's just giving thanks and a silence and a doorway through which another voice may speak yeah. so sometimes it, like for me in that funeral it just arrived it was just a given and it's, it's interesting because um, the common, the obvious is that we're all in the throes of the human condition you know a Zen teacher say once the Dharma is like a good joke everybody gets it you know <laughs> when a mother says at her own son's funeral he was a good son you get it 
And maybe we can call that insight in contrast to knowledge. You know? It's like some, something becomes apparent that wasn't simply a figuring out. So this kind of investigation, and you can read Zen koans, you can read Zen literature in a way where you can see, oh yes, they're not just being crazy, they're they're trying to relate in a way that isn't just question-answer, you know. What is karma? Karma is the conditioned action and consequence that happens. And then how do we attune with that? When you look at Zen literature and you can see, you know, part of the tradition is that you, um, you respond to a koan with a poem. And, and actually there was a whole form at one point. You, gave it, you responded with a brief four-line poem. And then also, um, when you finished your training, you, you expressed your appreciation for practice, your understanding, your insight with the poem. And then in the Zen tradition, at the start of each year, you're supposed to write a little poem. So if that year you die, there it is. You've got that ready to uh, for your funeral. Um, and Dogen Zenji, in fact, wrote a poem for his death. And if you think about that story I told, um, to go back to this uh, phrase that was attributed to Dogen, that now, surprisingly, scholarship is saying, no, no, he never said that. It used to be taught as kind of like the bedrock of his uh, collective teachings. Um, But if you go back to the anecdote I told about the mother, um, was that body and mind dropped off 
or was that body and mind uh, cherished? You know? There's a way in which when we meet the moment uh, it, it, it's like there's something precious that resonates with aliveness um, for some uh, unknown reasons I come up with the idea that we should have a poetry festival here in Belfast and uh, I spent the day promoting that crazy idea uh, which was intriguing you know um, what is the poetics of awakening you know what is it to hold up the collective karma of a time and place and and cherish it in a way that uh, something's realized So we were looking at myth. You know? And there's a way in which each of our lives has its own mythology. You know? Your favorite stories about your past. You know? Did they happen? Is that really what happened? I mean, usually it's not a complete fabrication. unless you're a compulsive liar, which is a very interesting condition. I had a cousin who was a compulsive liar. It was always fascinating what he would say. Um, but I think for most of us, the truth has some um, allure for us. I mean, I think of the past It's like a scrapbook. And you open up your scrapbook and say, oh, there's a photograph of me when I was five and I got my first, whatever, Hurley stick, you know. Or <laughs> and, and of course, all sorts of things happened to you when you were five, you know. And probably most of them you have no clue about. But this one has for some strange and wonderful reason, it has taken on almost mythical uh, symbolism. It has become archetypical. Yeah. Um, like I hear 
I've lived in the States, United States for a long time. And I remember I would hear people say, well, where were you when you heard that Martin Luther King was assassinated? No. Even that story I told about that mother standing up and saying that. To me, it's a true story. You know, I was the officiant at the funeral. Uh, but it's also mythical. It also carries for me now. Uh, it's a vehicle of awakening. Yeah. So, we're both investigating the evident, the common, and we're investigating the mystery of how we hold this world together with, you know, the threads of our own um, associations. Mm. And then the other aspect of myth is um, here's a story someone told me today. Uh, he and his partner conjured up something called Ten by nine. Do you know what that is? Mm -hmm. No. No. Yes. I'm just curious to see, because, of course, I didn't. I don't know if there's enough course to that, but I didn't. <laughs> um, they created this notion that they would have. I think it's ten people, and each person has nine minutes to tell a story. And he said, it's fascinating. And here's one of the stories he told me. He said, um, this family is in France on holiday and their little boy gets lost at the beach. And they start to get worried. And they search for hours and they can't find him. And they call the police, and everybody's looking for this little boy. And they have no idea where he is. And this policeman who's off duty um, says, I'll go and help. And, um, and actually thinks, well, I'll bring my daughter, who's the same age as the little boy he's lost, because I'll be less scary if I come across him and I have a child rather than a big scary man who might, who's probably been told don't ever talk to strangers. So he went and he actually, he was the person to find him and he brought him to his parents and his siblings. And then uh, the next day, the parents of course were delighted. The next day, they brought him a present. 
and ingratitude and that started a connection between the two families and then he reciprocated I can't remember exactly what he did and then they reciprocated and then they started spending time together and then they had every Christmas together they became closely connected and this person was telling this story she was the sister of the little boy and it was 20 years later and now they have a 20-year relationship with this family and friends and they're like they're all one big family and we were marveling at in one way what part of that seems like well that's amazing a little boy getting lost finding a little boy somebody being nice and kind and thoughtful somebody being grateful for someone else's kindness you know there's something obvious something common and then there's something um, something mythological it's like a parable you know it's like a spiritual parable you know um, when, when we enter the world in a certain way we engage the world in a certain way we foster goodness you know? like Mir Miri Oliver saying it doesn't have to be the blue iris it doesn't have to be like some exquisite event you go wander down the beach the little boy had walked 10 kilometers six years old and he walked 10 kilometers and of course he was hopelessly lost and confused um, almost what you might call the everyday mythology of a life of all life um, so this koan this investigation in that sense that um, the narrative of being alive is amazing yeah. not because we figure it out not because we have clever ideas about it in an interesting way they, all, they tend to get in the way yeah. It, it's its exquisite nature is in its fundamental being you know, in, in its intimacy with the commonality of our shared existence
Look, when you're doing zazen and sitting and letting the body breathe, letting the breath breathe the body, it's a fundamental activity. You know? Whether or not you've ever heard the phrase Shinjin Datsuraku, whether or not Dogen did say that to Rujing, or he didn't, you know? The great story, which now maybe never happened, um, was that Dogen was sitting in the Zendo, the monk beside him was sleeping, and the teacher, Rujing, said something and um, Dogen heard it as drop off body and mind and in that moment he was inspired to drop everything and had a, an awakening experience for each of us to discover, to investigate, discover, and realize you know, the shared commonality of our existence, the, um, the exquisite nature of any moment And the, the exquisite nature of the web of interconnectedness. Hmm? And then the delicate art of Zazen. You know? You, 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 you can't manufacture this exquisite nature. Uh, then it's just your own artifice. It's just your, your own uh, mythology. It, it, the, the mythology points at something. The mythology hints at something. It offers a metaphor, a poem, an illustration of it. But then uh, the experiencing of it you know, in Zen has, you know, the origin of the word Zen, Chan, Jhana, absorbed in that moment. Whether it's just absorbed in the moment that your six-year-old has been found. got lost when I was about three and I remember when people find me and they were all so excited and I thought but I was always you know I was always me <laughs> I wasn't dead and I'm now alive again 
But I did get a telling off for uh, getting lost. That that way, where we're always in the exquisite moment, um, but we're not. And the investigation that brings it alive, the, the investigation that discovers the obvious. I just discovered I'm alive. Really? <laughs> you didn't know that? I knew it but I hadn't realized it, you know. And in a way, there's something valuable for us to, to just contemplate. Oh. It, the investigation in Zen practice, the koan, has, it doesn't have very much to do with the cognitive process. You think of those stories we read, like, oh, it's actually, uh, like, it's actually nonsense. It's meant to frustrate the mind. Hmm. It's not limited to the rational thought, but it's actually, it's talking about another way of being another way of appreciating being. And, and so this is the... Uh, this investigation has become um, a theme of the uh, the methodology to be a little bit clumsy about it of the Zen way mm -hmm. and I was thinking today sure we could do that here everybody'd love it and I thought what a marvelously ridiculous idea. But the amazing thing was, everybody I introduced it to said, yep, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And then the final meeting was with the guy who runs the Crescent Arts Center. And he said, you can have the place for free. In fact, I'll try to get a grant. And then we talked about, does it require money? No? And he said, it doesn't require money, but you know, 
It's good to give people some money. Let them know they're appreciated. You know, if they come and do something. So how to investigate and how to live the investigation. The Genjo Koan, the Koan of living aliveness. That's that it's this wonderful combination of utterly obvious and mysterious. Yeah. And I think anybody who sits in for a while has this uh, mix of experiences. Sometimes it's just embarrassing how sloppy and messy your mental and emotional activity is. And then sometimes it has its glimpse of the exquisite, you know? It's just something uh, comes alive. And it's related to in a way that's profoundly instructive. And we could say Zazen is we create the structure, the uprightness, the balance, the awareness of body the easeful allowing and releasing of inhale and exhale. The utter willingness to experience whatever arises in the moment. Signs, sights, smells, even thoughts. Yeah. And, and that willingness. Yeah. The great mystery of the human condition. We're so committed to being alive. And in another way we seem to be so hesitant. Yeah. So sometimes it's a very useful instruction for ourselves when we're sitting to just what the hell just let it all happen you know? just stand up and sigh and tell it like it is he was a good son.
kinh chỗ khoan And if you can say it in Japanese, it must be really important. <laughs> Or so I've been led to believe for the last 30 years. <laughs> so one part of it is allowing what's already there. And then another part This is, if the first part is delicate, this part is more delicate because it's, um, what you might almost call moving towards. It's like directing attention. Like the phrase I was using this morning in the sharing circle was do what you're doing. And part of the great fun I had in the, inter in the conversations I had today was we were trying to be creative. Which if you think about it is a really silly notion. But um, it's also stimulates something. We direct attention to uh, aliveness. You, know? you pay attention to the breath, you give attention to the breath and you discover, you realize you're breathing. No. You listen to the sound and you realize the sound. No. You give attention to the sensations in the body and you realize body. So directing and receiving, they, they are the two uh, aspects of uh, investigation. Genjo Khan. And then just to scare the living daylights out of you, I'll read you what he said after that. When all dark, well actually he said it in, in ancient Japanese. Part of the problem is it's, uh, that he wrote it in ancient Japanese and then he also gave himself the liberty to give words a different meaning from what they commonly had and to bend the grammar to make it um, like somehow when you in poetry when you when you 
put the verb first and then the, and then the subject and then the object you know you 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 craft a different kind of meaning so Dogen did that a lot in his uh, essays but the English version is this when all dharmas are the Buddha Dharma there is real delusion and realization practice life and death Buddhas and living beings when the 10,000 dharmas are without self, there is no delusion, no realization, no Buddhas, and no living beings, and no birth and death. Since the Buddha way, by nature, goes beyond abundance and deficiency, there is a rising and perishing, delusion and realization, living beings and Buddha. Now, what does that have to do with a six-year-old boy getting lost on a beach in France? What has that got to do with all the things you did today? Is that a help or a hindrance? Does that make you think there's something you should know? Or does that help you realize that everything is your teacher and everything is utterly accessible? This very mind is Buddha.